snow slows them down If just for a day But here comes the sun Those toxic gold rays Trains start to move Bears start to rain The seasons we had Hello and welcome to episode 1380 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. You got snowed on this week. Oh my gosh. Tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> it made So this is a thing that is not just a personal anecdote. I was in Colorado for some family stuff. My cousin graduated from high school, so good job, Maddie. Good luck at the University of Oregon. And it's May. You know, we know it's May. We're experiencing. Late May. It's late yeah. May. And uh, we we knew it might be a bit cold. You know, weather in Colorado can be kind of persnickety and unpredictable. And so I looked at the forecast and thought, I will bring a warmer coat than I need. But I did not anticipate that it would snow eight inches overnight. Yeah. That was not flurries. And that no. was not like snow and then it melts quickly. That was like standing snow, very yes. deep, not yes. at all late May looking amount of snowfall. Right. And so I just wondered, how do the Rockies not, I I should look at this because they probably, it's probably one of those things that balances out for teams that don't have domes, you know, either because they have snow early or because they have rain late in the season because it's September or whatever. But I just don't understand why we put a baseball team in Denver. They play baseball on the moon and it snows in May. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really like Denver. I feel like that's a place I'd probably like living. And snowing in late May only confirms my feelings on that because I really like snow. Snowing year-round basically at this point, that sounds pretty good to me. But it's not great for baseball teams probably. No. No, or for for outdoor graduations, for that matter. Um, you know, I think that generally they, you know, can be quite dry in Colorado, and so they appreciate the moisture. And I think if it had fallen on any other day, as a family, we would have been all for it. But um, it was tricky. I think the the Rockies were out of town; they were not playing in Denver, so it did not impact their gameplay at all. But I just thought, you know, it's hard to it's hard to clear out snow, for instance, from bleachers that can accommodate the graduating class of Douglas County High School. Um, And so I can only imagine how uh, tricky snow removal from cores must be. I know this is like a thing that that teams deal with and do, but it just seems kind of nightmarish. So, you know, sorry, Rockies. It's a weird place you play. We asked you to do this impossible thing and you do it mostly pretty well, uh, even if pitching is really hard. So there you go. Yeah, speaking of pitching in Colorado being hard, I was looking at how Kyla Freeland was doing. Not doing great, which uh, disappoints me because one of my favorite stories really last season was the Rockies' homegrown rotation and the fact that they were getting all their starts from guys they brought up, which was really impressive to build that kind of rotation at cores and to have that sort of success. And Kyle Freeland was sort of leading the charge. He was really valuable, at least in terms of just runs allowed or not allowed. And he was someone who sort of fascinated me and Jeff. And we talked about a few times and actually had Freeland on the podcast to talk to him 
because he didn't really have the typical skill set of someone who would be as successful as he was. And he was really excellent last season, but Jeff and I were wondering, can he sustain this? Because he was kind of like a, a great command guy, like soft contact guy, and you never really know how much of that is luck and how much of it is skill, or if it is skill, can you sustain that skill? Because it's really tricky to do, and man, so far this season, it argues for difficult to sustain because... Yeah. Uh, He's got a 6 ERA and and a FIP close to that, and even when you cores adjust it, it's not pretty. And he was so great at cores last year. I remember writing about him. I think he had like maybe the best cores season ever, at least pitching specifically in Denver. He was actually better when he was pitching in Denver, which was just weird. Yeah, very strange. And that just – he has not kept that up this year and – I don't know what's going on with him exactly, except that he's walking more guys and he's giving up tons of dingers. The weird thing is, yeah, (laughs) uh, which, you know, Colorado pitcher, like you'd think they'd give up lots of dingers, but he was not doing that before. And he was limiting hits. Like he had a fairly low Babbitt, but now he has an even lower Babbitt. So maybe he is getting lucky in certain ways, or maybe it's just that he's allowing so many homers that there aren't any balls in play. I don't know what's going on, but it's sort of disappointing that he's not keeping that up. Yeah, it's a, I mean, there are definitely guys this year where sort of across the board, we're seeing, you know, diminished sort of performance from a lot of pitchers. And some of it we can look at and say, well, like the ball seems to be different. And of course, you're giving up a couple more dingers because like the ball's going a lot farther. But then, but then there's Kyle Freeland and you're like, oh, so this is more than that. Because you don't go from having a 0.76 home run per nine to a 206 home run per nine and be able to attribute all of that to the ball. And then that in combination, like you said, with the walk increase is just killer. Like he's walking a guy more per nine than he was last year. He's striking out slightly more guys, but not by not by a whole lot. And I oh, I guess on like a rate basis, it's actually lower. So yeah, uh, yeah buddy, it's not <laughs> the best. Yeah. Um, and sorry. The little- fantasy profile blurb on his fangrass page that was written before the season says he's perhaps the poster boy of regression so called it i guess but (laughs) i wish hadn't called it because i really enjoyed what he was doing last year and i like to have like one or two of those guys who don't fit the profile of the typical strikeout type ace and so then there's this whole conversation about like is he actually good or is he right. getting lucky and is he a soft contact guy it's like the old I don't know Matt Cain kind of conversation where for a while he would just defy his peripherals and then in the end usually you stop defying them and it comes back to bite you but I was hoping Freeland could sustain that for a while and, and maybe he'll get his form back at some point but that whole Rockies rotation like Marquez has been good, but beyond that, it's just not great. Like John Gray's having another one of those seasons where some of his peripherals are really impressive, but the actual runs and runs allowed results are not, and maybe he's he's just going to be that type of guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he and Freeland last year were like two of the most perplexing pitchers like in opposite directions. Like one of them seemed like he should be better than that and one of them seemed like he should be worse than that. And I enjoyed that. And I just enjoyed just how successful a pitching and defense team the Rockies were despite those conditions. And yeah, that's that's tough to keep up. Yeah, and I think that the – it just – it just seems so silly, of course, that they would be a team that was led, led by their pitching, because yeah. it's just it's just a goofy thing, and you keep expecting, you know, you keep expecting it to be this huge, like heavy hitting offense, and for the second year in a row, 
I guess it's probably been a little bit longer than that even. Like the the team is not hitting particularly well, and now the pitching is regressing. So then you understand why the Rockies are, uh, you know, as of today in what oh they're they're nine games back. They're under yeah. 500. My grandparents yeah. in Colorado are very disappointed. They're sad about it. But yeah, the you know, if the pitching's not going to be good, they need to be mustering more than an 83 WRC plus as a team. Jeez, that just <laughs> how is that? <laughs> they have Nolan Arenado though. I yeah. know, and they play they play in Coors. You had an article at the Hartball Times this week, right? About the, the Rockies yes. hangover effect. What was the conclusion there? Because that's always been a, a subject that's fascinated me. Yeah, so and we can we can link to this in the yes. in the post for this so folks can check it out. You know, the the cores effect that everybody knows about is that there's, you know, the because of the altitude, the ball goes farther. And then because of the park dimensions, you tend to have a lot of, you know, doubles that turn into triples and whatnot. But Shane was interested in looking at sort of how far, you know, how much store we can really put into the idea that hitters are going to suffer when they move away from course or the hangover effect. And he found that, you know, there are other parks that actually do have, that have sort of similar um, effects to cores. It is not a singular phenomenon that that goes there you know he he noted especially that petco park can have sort of an odd effect on its hitters city field can sometimes do the same and so it is something that he did note kind of needs greater study and and larger samples but that course is not singular in that uh effect but that it is you know it is sort of outsized compared to many other parks although not all by its lonesome so i guess that's good but yeah it's it's a weird it's just weird it's a weird place. <laughs> yeah, I think course field is a thing them. that people have been saying requires further investigation yeah. <laughs> for like 20 years at this point. So at least it's an endless source of content. So there's that. Well, and we do have the like the pleasure now of it not being the only field in in baseball that has a humidor, so we can True. Uh, we can get a little bit of cross comparison there where I think we were lacking it before that. But yeah, it's it's an odd place. It is a beautiful ballpark. Uh, I yeah. enjoy Coors Field. Uh, Winter you, Wonderland. Yeah, in late if you, May. yeah. If you get the opportunity to go, it is quite nice. Although they will tell you now, people should know this that you know certain herbs are legal in the state of Colorado for recreational consumption that are not illegal in other places and you are not allowed to smoke marijuana in the ring of seats that is actually a mile high that is not part of the terms of use (laughs) and they will yell at you and they did that on twitter to someone so you should all just know that you can't smoke pot in the purple seats even though i'm sure that the instagram pictures would make you quite famous and popular you probably wouldn't get to go back to course feels anytime soon so don't do that uh but yeah go and observe the the effect of that weird that weird ballpark on its hitters and the poor pitchers who have to pitch there. Marquez yeah. is good though. Yeah, yeah, he is. Marquez is <laughs> Marquez is arguably better than he was even just last year. So there is a bright spot, but that team has been it's been disappointing. I mean, they mm-hmm. weren't projected to be especially amazing, but uh Right. Well, I did want to talk about a bizarro Freeland, someone who's made the opposite kind of conversion here and has gone from being very bad to being very good. And that is Lucas Giolito, yeah. who is having a really exciting season. So he is coming off a complete game shutout of the Astros of all teams, yeah, in which he allowed four hits and one walk and struck out nine. That was really impressive, but his whole season has been really impressive. And his strikeout rate is way, way up. He is walking fewer guys. He's giving up a lot fewer homers. And he's also maybe getting a little fortunate in some ways, but all of his numbers look really strong. And that is coming off of 
perhaps the worst season by any starting pitcher last year. So it's strange because if you were to tell a person from 2015 or something that this is what Lucas Giolito was doing in 2019, they would say, sure, of course, that's what he is projected to do. But if you were to say the same to a person of 2018, they would say that is not what I expect Lucas Giolito to do because that's not what he's doing now. And I know that he is a player who really vexed Jeff last season Mm -hmm. because it looked for a while that Giolito was putting things together. And I think in spring training, he had maybe added velocity and changed his mechanics and looked really promising for a while. And then the season started and everything was terrible. But this year he has made more changes and this time they've actually paid off and he's been one of the better starting pitchers in baseball. Yeah, Devin Fink wrote about this for us at Fangraphs earlier in the week when I was in the snow. And it seems like part of this is just properly diagnosing what pitches are effective to which handedness of hitter. So I hope that I'm going to remember this right. I was buried under snow. It feels like a long time ago. But my my remembrance of that article was that he has started throwing his uh, slider to righties uh, with a, a much greater frequency as an out pitch and that he is throwing his chair change up to lefties with much greater frequency uh, because the the fastball isn't as isn't an especially effective out pitch for him and that it has yielded very positive results so you know it's one of those things where hitters will have an opportunity to adjust to his adjustment certainly and it's still the early going but it does look um, quite promising compared to where he's been where it's sort of mired in this like you should be a lot better than you are buddy but you're mm-hmm. but you're not so good for yeah. good for him And he's also made some mechanical changes. I think he went back to talk to his high school coach and went back to some of the things that had helped him at that time. And so his velocity is up at least relative to last season by quite Mm -hmm. a bit. He's averaging 94.3, which is pretty good. And that's good too, because he was like a flamethrower as a prospect. And then a lot of that speed went away. And now at least some of it has come back. So. That's good, and I don't know if it's safe to say that things are looking up for the White Sox across the board, but there are some positive developments there because I remember the team preview episode for the White Sox this year. We did that one, right, with James Fagan? And, yes, we uh, did. And that kind of was a negative <laughs> note because it was like, yeah. why can't they make all these prospects be good at baseball? Yep. And now I guess some of them are being better at baseball. So maybe things are looking up. It's funny how like a rebuild can look like it's really running off the rails and it can go from, well, this is so promising. They have all this young talent to, oh no, this young talent isn't panning out to a couple of those guys right the ship and suddenly things look up again. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you think about the improvement that they've seen and the value they've gotten out of Moncada so far, and then Tim Anderson is just having this incredible season and, you know, is also just establishing himself as like one of the cooler guys in baseball, right? Like a a player that fans can really get excited about and is super invested in the community, is taking advocacy seriously. So I think that you're right, that the perception I have of that team is not that they are especially good right? Like they are still 10 games out of first place in the central and under 500, but no one was expecting them to be good. So these are the kinds of marginal improvements that you want to see as a fan to then feel positive about what the future might bring, especially when some of their injured arms are able to come back and throw. So yeah, it's, it's not, um, it's not like it's a good season, but, Mm -hmm. uh, it is a promising season, I think would maybe be the way that I think about them. And that, that's better than nothing. Cause like you said, that, 
that preview pod with James was quite grim. <laughs> and my, my poor roommate is a White Sox fan and she listened to it. Right. And she's like, I didn't feel better about my team at all. And I was like, well, that wasn't what we were trying to do, but I'm sorry that you're sad. <laughs> <laughs> right. oh, yeah. Lordy. Well, that's why guys like Giolito will get chances for years. And right. Not that like he was close to running out of rope, but he was such a highly touted prospect that when you have those skills at some point, other guys never have those skills at any point, and you don't necessarily need those skills to be a productive player. The book that uh, that you received this week and yeah. are about to dive into, that's all about how some players are making more of themselves than anyone ever thought. But someone like Giolito, who had that raw talent to be one of the top prospects of baseball, He's always going to get a longer look down the road because it's always seductive to think, well, if he could just tweak something and get right. back to whatever was working before, it just seems like it should be easier to go back to something you've already done than to do something you've never done, although that is also possible at times. So it's nice that he has really corrected course and uh, has put himself back on the map for positive reasons. So good job, Giolito. Yeah, he he's done a good job. He's not a member of the Mets who have done a poor job. Do you have the experience of when you're having to travel in a way that keeps you away from baseball, feeling very disoriented upon your return yes. because it feels like everything has changed? Very much so. Yes. So so like I have just accepted, and I'm I could disabuse myself of this ignorance, right? I could look into it, but I've decided I'm just not going to. I will never know why Todd Frazier and Adam Eaton are fighting <laughs> and why they don't like each other. I don't know. I just missed it. I don't understand. Understand this Natalie Portman Moby story either. So there, it's not just baseball. But you, you're away for a couple of days, and and you're you're just you have no idea what's happened. I missed I missed a. I, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure based on what I saw of Twitter the time I checked Twitter while I was with my family that I missed a good uh, Chris Paddock start. I love good Chris Paddock starts, and I didn't get to see a single frame. So it's very disorienting, and no one should ever take vacation, and we should all just work forever. And I'm going to say that, and then Appleman's going to call me and be like, well, Meg, you really can't take vacation. <laughs> yeah, well, at least you can go back and watch Chris Paddock. I don't know that you need to go back and catch up on <laughs> the Frasier Eaton feud. I don't understand. I think it stems from the Drake LaRoche saga, oh, which re right. remains one of the weirdest stories in modern baseball history. But uh, Is that... there was some beef that developed was that, that season. Was that story linked to the Chris Sale thing? Were, were those part of the same story? I know it was the same season. Right. right, same group of guys, same weirdness pervading that clubhouse at that particular time. So, how I think... do we not talk about the Chris Sale thing every day? Yeah, how do we not talk about the fact that Chris Sale cut up a bunch of jerseys with scissors because he didn't want to wear the ones with the wide collars? Why is that not something we talk about every day? We should get up every single day and like think about climate change and be bummed out and then to recover think about how chris sale cut up <laughs> jerseys with scissors yep because well. he didn't like them and wanted his friend's kid to be able to hang out in the clubhouse i don't know if those things are actually linked and someone will tell me and i don't care i want them to be part of the same story and i don't remember and so it's our podcast it's all part of the same thing now. That's what yep. we've decided. <laughs> well, at least we've talked about it today. So yeah. we can make a resolution. We'll talk about it tomorrow, and then we'll sure. just take it day by day. <laughs> Six innings, one run. It was earned. Seven strikeouts, uh, five hits. Good job, yeah. Chris. Not bad. Mm. Yeah. All right. What's on your mind? I'm thinking about whether we like the current version of baseball we're watching. I think mm. this is our topic for today because okay. we were thinking about 
what we wanted to chat about. And I was struck by a couple of pieces that have come out at Baseball Prospectus over the last couple of weeks, uh, one of which came out today by Rob Arthur, where he was talking about the worst teams are getting worse and more mm-hmm. quickly, right? So he looked at, he used the baseball perspective's playoff odds uh, as figured by Pakoda and looked at how quickly teams are dropping out of contention and the effect that, that might have on our experience of baseball. So he, you know, and he noted that several of these teams had pretty low chances of making making the playoffs, let alone making the World Series or winning the World Series uh, when the, the season started. So it's not as if every single one of these teams was in contention, right? Like the Marlins exist, but they are still arriving at what are effectively zero percent chances of making the, the postseason quite a bit earlier than they would have even as recently as 2015. Mm-hmm. He noted that, you know, these non-contenders, I think he said that the long odds they faced in 2015 have grown three times more insurmountable this year. Um, so even though they they were very long odds, they are just really out of it. Uh, yeah. And so I was thinking about that. And then I was also thinking about a thing that uh, Rob Maines wrote a couple of weeks ago about how comebacks are uh, just way less common than they used to be. And so I thought we could talk about those two things and sort of whether we're um, a fan of the version of baseball that we're watching right now, because it does seem that some things are shifting around uh, and it's not just home runs. Yep. We have had this stratified league for the last few years and increasingly so where you have some super teams that are really great and seem almost like locks at the start of the season. And then you have teams that you can really rule out at the start of the season. And that's always been the case for some teams, of course, but it seems a little more pervasive currently, and we can talk about why that is. But of course, there are still teams that are expected to be good that end up not being good, like the Nationals, for instance, who are on a two-year run of being that team right now. And I'd actually like to talk a little bit about the Nationals, but you have, say, Cleveland, who... You know, I thought would probably still win that division, even though they didn't do anything to increase their odds of of doing so this past winter. But they have had a lot of things go against them, and the Twins have had everything go right, and so now the Twins are up there. But yes, on the whole, Rob showed through the same point in the season, whether you look at the date or the number of games, the playoff odds of the teams that are at the bottom of the league are a lot lower than they have been in the past. And that's not a good thing, I don't think. I no. don't know that it's a disastrous thing, but it's it's not great to have teams that seem out of it in May. That's not really a, a positive development for those fan bases. And as Rob notes, we're down about, I think he said, what, 500 fans per game right. relative to last year at the same point, which could have something to do with that. It, it's always tough to untangle competitive effects from weather, from just prices from you know some of the the bad parts of going to games from the competing entertainment options out there from the fact that it's fun to sit on your couch and watch a game these days it's it's hard exactly to identify what is causing that but it can't be helping that there are teams that are really out of the race at this early point right and i i think that what you want to do is with any entertainment product just because of how much there is that we can watch that isn't even baseball, right? There are so many things that we can use to occupy sort of our evening hours when we don't have to be working that what the game really needs to think about is reducing the number of excuses that someone can put in front of 
going to a baseball game because once you start layering them, I don't think we have to tease them out to really figure out what's what. I think they have a compounding effect on one another. It's like you have a team that isn't very good, like say the Mariners. Let's say that you're a fan of the Seattle Mariners. <laughs> and you're like, this team isn't very good. And then you think about how, you know, the traffic to get there is bad. Well, the team can't do anything about that, but that's the thing that people think about. And then you think about how you get there and you're going to pay, you know, $9 for a beer and you're going to pay $12 for a hot dog and you're going to pay $45 for an ice cream or whatever it is. And the tickets to get in are, you know, maybe they're being priced in a way that's a little bit competitive by the team because they want you to show up. But a lot of teams don't do that uh, mm-hmm. and so you have to pay the ticket price to get in and then maybe instead of being a fan of the Mariners you're a fan of a team that plays in a place where it's cold and rainy or snowing <laughs> and so you are just stacking up reasons one on top of another to not go to the game which doesn't mean that you're not necessarily engaged with baseball but you just have this very cozy less expensive option of engaging with the sport you like at home and that's if you don't mind watching a contest that isn't competitive where you just might decide to do something entirely different with your baseball viewing time and so I I think it is a concerning it is a concerning thing because you have I, I was talking about this with a friend earlier today you know you have teams that I think are starting to shift around some of the strategy they have in terms of how they deal with these sort of big leads that develop early and I'm not surprised that comebacks are less common than they used to be, which was uh, Rob Maines' conclusion. We just got a bunch of Robs on this podcast today. Because why are you going to throw a guy in a non-competitive situation? You have a big bullpen. You're just going to throw whatever dude's job it is to be the sad sack that comes in when your team is behind. I think that there is a possibility that like in the last three years of his professional career, because I'm pretty sure he's in the Mexican League now, that Vidal Nuno never pitched with a lead. Or even just like a one-run deficit. I think that guy only ever came in when there were like five runs of difference between him and the team he was throwing against. And so you have people who are just sort of incentivized to not engage with the sport, whether they're in the ballpark or at home, because it just doesn't feel competitive at either the macro or micro level Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. And I I wonder, I think we looked at this, you sent me a little chart about how it it feels like there are a lot of blowouts this year. Like we're, we're looking at football scores more often mm-hmm. than I expected or than we have seen in the past. So it's just, it doesn't feel competitive on a number of different levels, which I think is a problem. Yeah, there are a lot of blowouts these days. This is a, a little lower, the, the percentage of blowouts per game played, which I think you defined as, what, six runs or more than yeah, six, six runs? Six, six or more. Yeah. Six so, or more. yeah, so it's it's kind of close to a high point right now. And it turns out that that just correlates really well with scoring. Sure. So I looked at the, the correlation between runs per game and the percentage of games that are blowouts by that definition, and it is 0.82. So that's a very strong relationship. When you have more scoring, you have more blowout games, which I, I guess makes sense. So that's part of it. And I don't know that that's anything about the stylistic way that baseball works now, or it's just the ball. The ball is uh, is blowing up, and so you right. get scoring, and so you get blowouts. And then the comeback thing is a little surprising to me. I, I don't know how much to make of that because that 
has bounced around a bit in recent years, as indicated by Rob's article. But it looks like there's some slight trend maybe toward, I don't know, fewer comebacks over the past several years, which uh, could be the case. It could be just, you know, position players getting into games and pitching when games are out of hand or having those mop-up guys not putting good guys in high leverage or low leverage situations, as you said, or it could be other factors. I don't know. But I think probably the more concerning trend is just the teams that are totally out of it because that's something that affects every single game where even if it's a close game and a competitive game, you know that in the long run, it doesn't matter because there are no stakes to the season because this team is out of it. So I don't know exactly why we're in this place. I think it's very tempting just to say, well, it's tanking and it's teams that are doing what the Astros and the Cubs did and they're following that lead and they're not trying to win. And there's some of that, but It's also when you look at the teams that are at the bottom of the league that are kind of out of it right now, it's sort of a a mixed bag. And in some cases, it's teams that have tried, like, you know, look at the worst teams in baseball right now, like your fourth and fifth place teams. I mean, just going division by division, you've got in the West, you've got the Mariners, who I think it's fair to say that they sort of did a teardown this past winter. They you prefer have the term step back. Step back. Yes, well, they have certainly stepped back. And <laughs> you have the Angels who they've tried, I would say. The Angels yeah. have uh, tried to win and they just haven't. So that's not really – they're not in a position where they are trying to lose in the short term to win right. in the long run. I think they're trying to win and it's just not working out. Then in the Central, you have the Tigers and the Royals who are sort of in the same boat, which is that they were good teams and then – they stopped being good and now they're in this down cycle. And I don't know that you can say that either of them did an intentional like tank or rebuild so much as just their old team ran its course. And right. if anything, you could argue that they should have been more aggressive about doing a, a teardown and rebuild and trying to get what they could out of their players before they weren't worth anything anymore. So those seem like sort of just old school down cycles coming after up cycles Then in the AL East, you've got the Orioles, who I I think sort of fit into that boat too, right? Like they were good. Mm -hmm. They they won lots of games for several years, and then they got super terrible. And now they're in a rebuild, but it's not like they entered one prematurely. And I mean, I guess if they had signed some free agents or something, they would be better than 15 and 35. And so they've decided not to do that. But I just, I don't know, you look up and down or the Giants, for instance, are in the kind of Royals, Tigers, like we were good and then we held on to our players for a long time and then they got old and not good and that happened to the team or like the Reds, mm-hmm. they tried, the Reds tried to be better, they I tried know. to invest in their team and that didn't work and then you got the Marlins who are, you know, the Marlins, <laughs> they're just sort of in their own singular situation. Then you got the Nationals who are 19 and 31 right now yeah. and they're a team that I picked to win the second wild card this year. And I don't know why they're 19 and 31. So it's like you look down the list and it sort of doesn't fit like a really simple narrative, at least to my mind. It's like a bunch of teams that are bad right now, but for different reasons. And that's why I, so I think that um, 
you know, everyone's mileage kind of varies in terms of how much of the fretting from the commissioner's office they have tolerance for, right? Like Mm -hmm. his concern over, you know, shifting or pace of play or what have you, I think that it sometimes strikes people as kind of fussy. Or if we want to maybe be a little more generous to that critique and, you know, put some actual good explanation around it, it strikes people as sort of putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable and focusing on things that are sort of small and nitpicky, whereas they could be focused on, you know, bigger sort of structural changes to the game that might impact the way that we experience it. And I have sympathy for that argument, but I do think that places like this are where you see the value of really paying close attention to little things because they can compound in ways that we don't necessarily expect and interact with one another in ways that we don't necessarily expect. And then at the end of it, it's not that any one of those problems is really what's doing in your experience of baseball, but collectively it does make you kind of pause and say like, is this the version of the game I want to be watching? Is this the way I want to be engaging with the sport? Is the expense of it and the time worth what I'm seeing? And when you have this mix of of teams that are so far out of it so early and the best you're hoping for as like a, a fan, if you're going to the ballpark, is that they're playing a better team that you're not rooting for because <laughs> it's not your team. It does sort of leave you in the spot where you're like, well, Maybe I'll just check in on the, well, no one's going to check in on the Marlins in a couple of years because they're still the Marlins, but like maybe I'll check in on the, you know, the Giants when they're further along or the Reds when this rebuild is going better, or I'll wait for the White Sox, even though they're not, you know, by any means in the worst position of any of the teams that we, you know, that we're looking at here. I'll wait until their arms are healthy and back from Tommy John and then it's all coming together. But in the meantime, like, do I need to really be invested in this? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't even like, engage with like the aesthetic version of the game that we're looking at right now where it's like I I don't even when the teams I like best are on the right side of a blowout I don't especially enjoy that like it gets boring it takes the tension out of it and if teams can't come back in those situations the same way that they maybe did in the past there's no you're just sitting there knowing what the outcome's going to be and then it becomes is the path that the team gets takes to get there sufficiently interesting to keep me engaged and i think for a lot of people the answer to that might start to shift and mm-hmm. so it makes me nervous mm-hmm. yeah so i mean we're at like uh, 21% of games this year have been blowouts by this definition which uh, would be like 500 10 games or something over the course of a season and if you look back at oh i don't know uh 2014 or something when the ball wasn't so hopped up right then it was like 16.5 percent of games were blowouts by the same definition which is like 400 games so i mean you're talking about like an extra 110 games or so a season that are blowouts as opposed to non-blowouts and I don't know. It's it's not an enormous difference, but it seems noticeable. You noticed it, so yeah. <laughs> I, I guess it's it can't be ignored. And I don't know how much of that is just the ball, and how much of it is the teams that we're talking about being terrible. Because it, it stands to reason, probably, that if you have a bunch of teams that are really good and a bunch of teams that are really terrible, that would lead to more lopsided matchups and more blowouts. So that seems bad. It seems bad. But what I've argued in the past is that. The rebuild or the tank or whatever you want to call it 
isn't less entertaining in the long run because you can get good again faster. Mm-hmm. And even if you're bad, if it seems like there's a plan and that you can point to a year when you'll get good again and maybe you can follow your prospects that are really fun to watch, that's a, a way to experience a team that can also be entertaining. And there's something to be said for that compared to trying to sustain a window that really is already closed and you're just trying to tell yourself that it's there's still a sliver open and if mm-hmm. we just sign this guy or that guy we can keep it going but really you just dig yourself a deeper hole and then it's longer until you actually get good again so we've seen many teams that fall into that bucket where they're not truly terrible they're not the Orioles or the Marlins and so on a game to game level maybe their contests are more exciting But on a season-to-season level, maybe not so much because they're not really in it. Like They're kind of maybe on the periphery of a race from time to time, but you never really get the feeling that they're the favorite. And to have that stretch on for years and years, sometimes it is better to just sort of rip the Band-Aid off and say, we'll be terrible, and then we'll get good again if you can pull that off. I have not rooted for a team that I felt – well, that's not true – I have felt confident in some Mariners teams <laughs> since 2001. I've been wrong every time. But <laughs> I do like the idea of us encouraging fans and baseball observers to find interesting stuff in something that isn't a team being dominant and winning. I think that there is a lot to be said for how we appreciate and what we allow ourselves to appreciate about baseball when we open up the possibility for that. And I do think that just like as as people, that uh, rooting for a losing sports team for a long time can be psychologically valuable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I might experience baseball as a way to be sad in a low stakes way. So that might be a weird Meg thing. But... I do think that there's value in in saying, you know, it doesn't have to be about making the postseason, but I think you're right that having the feeling and having that feeling be something that is not just I'm a fan and I always think my team's going to be good, but is I'm a, you know, I'm a smart fan. I'm an informed fan. I read fan graphs. I mm-hmm. read baseball prospectus. I, you know, know how stats work. And I can say in a way that isn't just I like this team best and so I hope it works out, but I like this team best. And also they've done these great things to be competitive. I think that when you're able to like mean it, right, it does, it does alter the course of your season. Now, there are plenty of teams where their fans get to mean it in the beginning and then it doesn't work out. Like I'm sure there are a lot of Nationals fans sitting around being like, I can't believe we're doing this again. Yeah. Like this is a good – this is a much better team on paper than the results would suggest. I can't believe that they are, you know, in a division that we all thought was going to be very competitive. And I guess, you know, on an average basis, they are doing better in that respect than a lot of other divisions because the the most that a team is out is the Reds at seven and a half games and, mm-hmm. um, you know – how are the Marlins closer to the top of the NL East than the Royals are to the top of the AL Central? How are the Orioles for, I mean, that makes sense, actually. The Orioles and the Marlins are just equally very bad teams. But yep. Nationals fans are sitting around being like, hey, what the heck, man? We're mm-hmm. 19 and 31 or 10 games out. And so that can still be disappointing. But I think there's a lot to be said for on opening day. You can feel it, right? You're like, yeah, this is our, we don't know if it's our year, 
but we would not be looked at in a funny way. No one would give us a pitying glance if we were to walk into a bar and say, it's our year. They'd be like, yeah, you're the Nationals. That could work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's never worked for you specifically in the past, but it, it theoretically is possible and it doesn't sound ludicrous. It sounds like a thing that is realistic and, you know, maybe quite a problem when so few fans can say something like that, even though I do think that people should be more comfortable rooting for losing teams and feeling sad. Because you appreciate all kinds of weird little stuff when you have to find something that isn't winning to appreciate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so speaking of the two teams that we thought would be good coming into the season that thus far have not been, there are two teams that are down 50% in their playoff odds since the start of the year, and that is the Nationals. And uh, they're down 52.5% right now. Cleveland is down 50.3%. They're down 70% in division odds, and the Nationals are down about 38% in division odds. So I know what's going on in the Central because you have the Twins who are just firing on all cylinders, and they've just been legitimately good. The underlying performance is as good as the record, which is rivaling the Astros for the best in baseball. And They've had, I think, good success on the pitching staff. They have incorporated some new ideas and new data, new technology to try to develop pitchers better. And I guess the poster boy for resurgence or guys who are good for the first time would be Martin Perez. But there are also other guys who have taken steps forward. You know, Byron Buxton is is back to being a very productive player. And Really, some of their other young players, Jorge Polanco and Mm -hmm. and Kepler, has not taken a huge leap, but he's been solid. And so that team is just pretty strong top to bottom. And then you have Cleveland, which they came into the year depending on some stars. They had this stars and scrubs type roster, and all their stars were stars last year, and that worked out pretty well for them. But this year, it has not at all. And Jose Ramirez has been a mess, and uh, they just haven't gotten... Obviously, Kluber's been hurt. Bauer has not been as effective. They haven't gotten as much out of the guys that they really needed to get something out of. And because the rest of their roster was just left untended all winter, and they just sort of figured, well, we can count on great seasons again from all these guys and that's not really happening even like Lindor missed some time and has been fine but not eight win Lindor from last year so when you're dependent on like six guys being good and then those six guys get hurt or are less effective Clevenger too then you're in a lot of trouble and they didn't build in that depth that teams like the Rays have or the Yankees or the Dodgers, and they've been able to survive some of their top guys getting hurt, and Cleveland just has not. But the Nationals are kind of a, a more difficult <laughs> question to unravel exactly what has gone wrong there. I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. <laughs> I don't understand it. I, I think I continue to find it amusing that just to return to to Cleveland for a moment that yeah. you know what we thought was really going to drive them we we knew the top of the rotation would be good and we thought it would be you know Lindor and Ramirez and despite all the injuries the pitching has actually still been quite f- has been fine mm-hmm. you know it's like not terrible in at least in terms of its AL rankings but that offense is just really putrid although it did allow Jay Jaffe to write the best fan graphs headline of the season so far, Indians drop cargo, retained baggage from offseason. So he <laughs> did a good job on that, and I did not get in his way one little bit. But the Nationals are just very strange. They're just – I mean, there's been some injury, right? Yeah. So that's some of it. 
but it has not been, it's just a weird, it's just a really very odd team because, you know, they have this terrible leaky bullpen, so that Mm -hmm. hasn't helped, but the starting pitching has still been good. Man, this bullpen. Yeah. (laughs) Oof. Yeah. Oof. After Doolittle, there's just not a whole lot there. It's just a Sia suck. Their bullpen is uh, by war 27th. They have a bullpen ERA of 702 and a bullpen FIP of 522. So that seems pretty bad. Uh, The Yankees have the best bullpen in baseball. That's not surprising. Although them Rays right behind them, Astros Mm -hmm. too. So like the the bullpen has just been really terrible and they aren't one of those teams that you can accuse of not trying to improve in in the offseason despite the fact mm-hmm. that they have, you know, they let Harper go, they had this great dynamic outfield and they brought in Patrick Corbin and yep. their starters have been very very good. So I guess in in that respect the Nationals are in sort of an enviable position in that they are able to perhaps identify some areas for for really rapid improvement, theoretically, although that offense has not produced particularly well, mm-hmm. but they're so far out of it at this point that you wonder, like, what what are they what are they going to do? I wonder if the Nationals would be well positioned to sort of do what Jared Depoto did last year, which was that he jump started his trade deadline acquisition stuff by getting new dudes in like June, May or June, right? Yeah. Right. So maybe they should be should be getting to it. But yeah, that bullpen is a real problem. That's very, very poor. Yeah, I guess it's just sort of the silent killers of teams that are taking them down. Yeah. It's the defense, which has oh. been oh, quite yeah, poor. And that's bad. often the thing when you look at a team and it's like, why are these guys so bad? I don't right. get it. It's it's often defense and that can go in the other direction too, where you don't understand quite why a team's so good. And it's, oh, well, they're just recording lots of outs on balls and play. That helps a lot. Right. And it kind of it's a little harder to notice because we don't look at those stats quite as often and the stats aren't quite as telling but yeah that's part of it and then the bullpen if one part of your team is going to be disproportionately bad a bullpen can really sink your season if it's as bad as the nationals have been because that's a lot of high leverage outings and big decreases in win probability and I don't know what to tell them because at this point, it's not that they haven't tried to build a, a right. bullpen. Like they've they've turned over this group like a couple times a at lot this of point, times. and no matter what they do, it's just it's a new group of guys, but it's the same sort of results. So that's pretty frustrating for them, right? And you know they did make some they made some moves in that bullpen. Wow, Austin Williams just that that point one inning was really bad for him. <laughs> you know they brought in Tony Sip. So that seemed like it could be a fun, promising thing because Sip has had moments of being quite effective. But yeah, outside of Doolittle, it's been, it's just been atrocious. Helixson's been quite bad. Uh, you know, Dan Jennings has been quite bad. Tanner Rainey's been quite bad. So you you just have this group that isn't um, able to hold any sort of a lead late. And you couple that, as you said, with just like really atrocious defense. And you're like, well, it has to feel terrible to be a Nationals fan. Mm-hmm. I can say that because I am still sort of a fan of a, f- a very bad team that also has a really terrible defense. So I know yeah. what that pain is like, but it is an odd it is an odd thing that they should be so bad. And in a year where they are still getting, you know, very good contributions from Scherzer and Strasburg and Corbin's been Rendon, good. Year after year. Year after excellent. year. He <laughs> is one of those guys where I don't know that we can credibly say he's underappreciated because we all say, hey, remember mm-hmm. how we should appreciate Anthony Rendon more? We say yeah. that a lot. 
but sometimes people feel that he is still underappreciated because we probably just don't talk about him enough. But when yep. your second best position player after Anthony Rendon is Howie Kendrick, <laughs> you might be in a bad spot. Yeah. You know, Juan Soto's bat has been good. The defense has been kind of wonky, but he's on the national, so that's not super surprising. And mm -hmm. then Adam Eaton has been fine. Not really. He's mostly fighting with Todd Frazier. That's what I learned while I was on vacation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's not like you can point to it and say, oh, they rue the day that they didn't offer no. Bryce Harper more money because like Bryce Harper's not doing so hot either. What you put Bryce year. Harper in this outfield and I mean, Soto's been better than he has. Robles has not mm -hmm. been great, but, but Robles and Eaton uh, have been not total abysses right. and Bryce Harper has not been what people want him to be either. So it would help to have Harper on that team, but it wouldn't help nearly enough to get them out of this hole. So I don't know. I mean, people talk about the Mets and, and the trials that they've been through and, and they have, but the Nationals, I, I feel like the Nationals, I mean, certainly this season, things are worse there. And I guess they've, they've had more heartbreak in a way and that they've gotten closer and then failed whereas the Mets haven't always gotten there although you know they've been to a World Series fairly recently but fairly recently yeah I don't know it's just uh it's sort of a, a sad thing for the Nationals because uh, they've had like probably the best team in baseball over the last several years that has not made more of that and has yeah. not won a playoff series so that is unfortunate I wrote the Nationals essay for the BP annual this year, and I, of course, had to decide when I was writing it if I thought that Bryce yeah. Harper was going to resign or not, and I said no, and I ended up being right about that. But yep. here's the thing I was wrong about. I was like, it's a new day in D.C. It has <laughs> not been a new day at all. It is an interesting sort of exercise in how the PR plays between those two franchises because we make fun of the Mets a lot, and they, they've they earned that ire, right? They, mm -hmm. they present themselves publicly in such a way that you just are like, you guys are kind of goofuses and should be criticized. But you do get the sense that there must be some sort of very real dysfunction at play within the Nationals organization. We talk about it some, but it has not risen to nearly the sort of level that the Mets has. And I wonder if just a big part of that is the willingness to spend yeah. and how how forgiving we are willing to be. And I don't say that say this like we should be a different way. I think that it's a perfectly good way to evaluate a, a franchise that we are willing to forgive quite a bit because they are making an investment in the team that suggests that they would like to win very badly. Whereas the Mets are sort of a, you know, average-ish size payroll, but they're in New York and so they really mm -hmm. ought to be spending much more. And they have a pretty good TV deal. So it is a funny thing to watch the way that those two franchises are playing out because, you know, both of them have managers that are coming under fire, um, perhaps unfairly, perhaps a little fairly, but not to the extent that they are. And they're both underperforming relative to where we maybe expected them to be um, before the season starts. But I don't think that we are feeling it doesn't seem that the collective uh, experience of the Nationals is anything akin to what it is for the Mets, uh, mm -hmm. even though they're doing quite a bit worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Mets are only a game under 500. That's I all. Know. They just did well after everyone was lamenting their latest things going wrong. But it is yeah. hard when you lose to the Marlins. When you get swept by the Marlins, you sit yes. around and you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That was right after we were talking about how the, the Marlins might be historically terrible, and then they've yeah. won, what, five in a row, six in a row since yeah. then? So even the Marlins are capable of making a run, right. which is odd. But 
Yeah, I mean, we didn't even talk about this before, but like looking at some of the records of these teams that are toward the bottom of their divisions, like the Reds are in last place, but the Reds still have outscored their opponents by like 25 runs or something, Yeah, which uh, that should lead to better results. And then the Pirates, for instance, are over 500, but they've been outscored by like more than 40 runs. So you have to wonder why those teams are not in different places, but they just are because baseball is weird. So sometimes the results are predictable, but the way that we get there is not because the the Pirates, they were the team that I think earned the most justified ire for not investing in their team. And uh, their results thus far have probably been better than they deserve based on how hard they tried to win. And and that may be just because they are outplaying their expected record right now. So sometimes these things correct themselves as the season goes on, but not always. But it is so funny. You bring up those pirates and those reds because they are on opposite ends of what we would expect their Pythags to be. So the pirates Mm -hmm. are outperforming their Pythag by six games. which leads baseball and the reds are underperforming theirs by five which is the the back end leader i never know the right way to say that (laughs) as an aside that's not the point of this but i never know they're leading they're not they're in the very back you know what i'm trying to say and the reds do a little better by base runs and the the pirates are uh, not outperforming quite as much from a base runs record perspective as they are by their pythag but yes they are both over and underperforming relative to what we would expect. And so it is, you're right, there's, like, I bet your experience on a daily basis of watching the Reds has to be very frustrating because you must have a sense even day to day that things are not shaking out quite the way that you would necessarily expect them to, and you really Mm -hmm. ought to be able to watch more wins, and then you can't. Yeah. Phillies are outperforming. I'm going to give a small Fangraphs alum update (laughs) which is that I was very sassy in the beginning of the season about how Fangraphs was just crushing baseball because all of the Fangraphs alums were, well, not all of them, but many of them worked for first place teams. Mm -hmm. And at this moment, it's just Corinne. Corinne is our our lone division leader still standing because the Phillies are a game and a half up on the Braves. Although I guess, you know, Jeff is only two games out of first. So he's doing okay. But the Yankees are good again, so it's really a problem for him. Sorry, Jeff. Yeah. He doesn't listen to the podcast, so he's never going to hear me be sad for him. He's just going to have to know it. Right. What did uh, Devin Fink also wrote a couple pieces this week about where we are in the season and Memorial Day as a a checkpoint and a a milestone? I know that you were traveling for much of the week and perhaps not editing those pieces. I wasn't, so I would love to hear what's in them. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, (laughs) I was going to ask you about that. Sorry, Devin. Yeah, you've you've got a long weekend to catch up on on what you didn't see when you were snowed in. Yep. I was at, I was getting snowed on at a graduation, and then yesterday I did something else. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, well, I uh, I can just summarize quickly because he <laughs> he summarized quickly when he wrote about this, and and you know he was looking at sort of should you check the standings before Memorial Day? Should you check the standings at Memorial Day? Does it actually mean anything? And uh, I think. As Jeff has written repeatedly in the past, there is still just a lot of noise at this point in the season, and the best thing to do is always to look at the projections, which are, even if you look at the preseason projections, they're more telling than 
what's happened season to date, but if you look at the projections that are updated for this season and also take into account what you expected coming into the year, then that that tends to be the most predictive thing, like really far into the season. So even though we are at that mile marker where historically people have said, okay, you can start to pay attention now. In many cases, it's still too early to pay attention. And uh, I think that's probably true for some of the teams that are leading or not leading right now. But on the other hand, when I look at the teams that are in first place, for instance, there doesn't look like there's going to be a whole lot of turnover no. between now and the end of the season. But you never know. Right. I could see that the 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 way that you summarized that argument makes me think that Devin did a very good job writing it and that Dylan did a terrific job editing it. And it's just so reassuring to hear both those things, even though I had no doubts at all that <laughs> yeah. it would be true. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, doing a great job at my job. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. I could see, I could see that Brewers team maybe sneaking up on the Cubs, although it's looking increasingly unlikely. Although the pitching still makes me a little bit nervous. But yeah, I, I think that when you look at the the leaders of each of these divisions, like you maybe see the NL Central and potentially the NL East doing a little swappity do and perhaps uh the rays catch fire again and and overtake the yankees or like you know we finally get to the breaking point with yankees depth and someone else gets hurt and then they they struggle but it does not feel as if there is likely to be a terrific amount of movement here mm -hmm. even among the some of the like teams that are really young and fun that we drafted highly in our fun teams draft you know the Dodgers are probably going to win the NL West. I don't think the Padres are going to catch them. I think the Padres don't think the Padres are going to catch them, right? I think they're pretty mm -hmm. realistic about their odds. And if Cleveland was unwilling to do what they uh, needed to to really shore up the Central in the offseason, you know, it seems unlikely this far out that they're going to necessarily make big moves at the deadline. So it does sort of take the wind out of your sails because things are feel very settled even though we've had some early surprises with teams that have not performed as well as we expected, like Cleveland mm -hmm. and DC. And yeah. so it's just kind of a, just kind of a bummer. Yeah. I mean, the Red Sox have worked themselves back into yes. the race after starting terribly. So the Red Sox being good was not something that would have surprised or excited anyone entering no. the season, but because they started so poorly now that they have restored their place in the standings, I, I think that's something to watch where they're, they're five and a half games back and that is not at all insurmountable, but yeah, otherwise you look around and you know, I don't know. It, it feels like Cleveland's kind of brought this onto themselves by yeah. not being more active. But on the other hand, so much has gone wrong for them and so much has gone right for Minnesota that if Cleveland had signed a free agent or two, that probably wouldn't make up the eight-game deficit that they are dealing right. with right now. Uh, you know, maybe they narrow that over the course of the season and it would be enough to help them come back. But it's very possible that even if they had invested more, things just would have gone so wrong that they wouldn't have ended up making it anyway. So I don't know. Sometimes seasons just really run so far off the rails that nothing you, you could have done to prepare would really help you. On the right. other hand, you have the Yankees who everything has gone wrong for them and yet they're still in first place. Yeah, I do like, in terms of the experience I have of baseball, I like very much that the Twins are legitimately good, yeah. right? They are, it's really very wild uh, mm -hmm. where they sit relative to the other very good teams in baseball. Man, go 
Good for the good for you, twins. You're doing great. Happy for you. So it's nice that it isn't that they are legitimately good sort of in themselves rather than it just being a matter of sort of predictable bad luck befalling Cleveland. And I guess this makes the wild cards potentially more interesting, right? Because yeah. you still have competitive wild card races. So it isn't as if all hope is lost there. But it does ugh, man. <laughs> I don't know. I just wish it were I just wish more of them were were better. I just yeah. wish more of them were better. We're going to Cleveland for an all-star <laughs> game. Who's excited about that? I mean, I'm yeah. excited. I've never been to Cleveland. I'm going to learn about it. found myself uh, consuming this season more through player seasons than team seasons, yes. I would say. And also league-wide trends, I suppose. But, but when I think of the things that have excited me this season i mean the twins have been exciting but for the most part it's been a a lot of predictable placements and then i get excited by you know cody bellinger season Mm -hmm. or christian yelich's season or joey gallo's season that's kind of been what's drawing me in more so than what any particular team is doing and i don't know if that's the typical way for me or whether usually I appreciate things more through a a team-centric lens, but definitely a lot less of that this year. It it is nice to have, it's really fun to have races, you know? And we we got an email question earlier this week about the sort of clumping of of end-of-year division games, and Noah, Noah, I can't answer your question, but we're going to reference it, so here you go, was noting that the 19 of the final 22 games that the Twins have this year are against division opponents, Mm -hmm. and that can be very exciting if you have more teams that are competitive, and I kind of like that the the schedule ends up being sort of balanced in in that way where you have a bunch of division games at the beginning and at the end, and then you get to see, hopefully, competitive, exciting division races, but I don't know that we're going to have that this year, and so I think that I, I agree with you that we're just more likely to experience the fun stuff in baseball through individual players, which you know, that's fine. Mm -hmm. You see a lot more of the league that way, right? You get to enjoy a lot of different kinds of baseball that way. Um, So I think that in that sense, it can be quite enjoyable, but it doesn't have the same, you, you go from appreciating tension to appreciating superlatives. Mm -hmm. And that's fun, but it is a different experience of baseball than having that like really fraught, tense race. Although I guess, you know, if the if the Red Sox continue to sort of mend themselves and the Rays stay competitive, that that, that AL East race will be yeah. uh, fraught and competitive and with one more team than we thought. So that's good. Mm-hmm. And you imagine that the Central, that NL Central, I should say, uh, will be will be tight and yeah. the, the very top of the NL East could be. Yeah. but half of the divisions in baseball are likely to be like very far out of reach pretty quickly here. So that yes. seems bad. Yep. Not great. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you look back at baseball history, there's always been some element of that. And obviously, early baseball history, you had teams that really weren't competing and and never were trying to compete and and teams that were like syndicate teams that were owned by the same person and Mm -hmm. would transfer players from one to the other. And I mean, that's going back a ways. But obviously, you have always had teams that weren't really trying or or just weren't competent enough to make a run. And I think if anything, we have more parity than we did decades ago, but maybe a little less parity than we had five years ago or something like that. So things are better, but also worse. 
Things are better, but also worse. <laughs> Mike Trout, officially the most valuable player in the American League. Excellent. So that's huh. good. Although Cody Bellinger, man. Yeah. Cody Bellinger. So we get to appreciate Cody Bellinger. That yep. part's good. This is not me discovering that Cody Bellinger is good. In case anyone is worried, I'm doing like a leaderboard moment. No, yeah. I knew I knew that. But man, Cody Bellinger, really good. <laughs> yep. Josh Bell hit another baseball into the river. He just does that on a daily uh, basis. So it's great. Trout being at the top of the leaderboard, like he's done that in a very quiet way. Very like, quiet. This is, uh, it's not been a season where he's not really leading in anything, right? He's just having this weird, extremely ultimate plate discipline year yep. where he's walking way more than he's striking out. Yep. And he's kind of, he's not hitting better. He's not really hitting worse either. It's mm -mm. just a, a different sort of season where he's not hitting for a ton of power because right. he's just walking constantly. And uh, yeah, I, I mean... If you have a, a 460-ish on base percentage as he did last year and does again, it doesn't really matter what else you're doing. That's That gets you most of the way there. Well, and the I think what I'm appreciating about him is that, I mean, he's not so far ahead of George Springer and Joey Gallo. And isn't it fun that the names that we have right behind Mike Trout are a little different than they've been in the last yep. couple of years? I mm -hmm. like it when there's some variety there. I'm more comfortable when Mike Trout's the best player in baseball, but it's nice when it can, you know, can kind of move around. You have different different guys but yeah he's you know he's just having a very troutian pretty good at everything yeah kind of year joey gallo is still walking almost 20 percent of the time <laughs> yeah mm. yeah nom 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 delicious <laughs> so excited yeah. about joey gallo but yeah <laughs> Me too. mike trout 175 wrc plus just behind him on the leaderboard, Daniel Vogelback, 171. <laughs> yeah, our large adult son. We're so proud of him. More home runs than Mike Trout. Great year. Yeah. Everything's great. All right. Has this podcast run its course? We yeah. talked. We found things to talk about. And we found we found things to be excited about in the end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We were worried that we would just be very glum by the end of it. And we have found a way to be happy, and it is through Mike Trout. Yep. So. Mike Trout saves the day again. Thank you, Mike Trout. <laughs> All right. Well, have a nice long weekend and talk to you next week. Sounds good. One quick update on something Sam and I talked about last time. Sam proposed that if a manager makes a challenge and the replay is not able to refute what he challenged, the call stands, but he still loses his challenge. And Sam and I suggested that maybe if the replay is not conclusive, can't overturn the call, but maybe you shouldn't cost the team its challenge either. And according to some discourse in our Facebook group, that is the case in Cricket. Daniel Jocelyn, one of our listeners and Facebook group members, posted in there that Cricket already essentially uses that system when they do a replay review the call is upheld overturned or umpire's call meaning it could have gone either way so we're just going to go with what the umpire said and if it's umpire's call then the challenging team keeps their review so that's exactly what we suggested that baseball do evidently cricket has also solved the briefly losing contact with a bag during a slide problem that baseball has still not tackled so perhaps there's a lot to learn from one of baseball's forebears cricket can still teach us something you can support the podcast on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up for patreon and pledged some small monthly amount to keep the podcast going mike livingston tim julia turner aaron hartman and brandon castro thanks to all of you you can join our facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild you can rate review and subscribe to effectively wild on itunes and other podcast platforms please keep your questions for me and meg coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can pre-order my book, The MVP Machine 
comes out in about 10 days. My goodness, Meg will be reading it this weekend. You can be reading it very soon. If you pre-order it, you will qualify for some extras, a bonus chapter, a conversation between me and Travis, and more. So please place your pre-orders and send some confirmation that you did to the MVP machine at gmail.com, and we will bestow some bonuses upon you when the book comes out on June 4th. We'll also be doing an event in person at Foley's, the bar on 33rd Street in Manhattan, on the release date June 4th. Travis and I will both be there. We'll be signing books, reading from the books, hobnobbing and chatting. So we hope you'll show up to Foley's at 6.30. We'll be there all evening on June 4th. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, a long weekend, and we will be back to talk to you next week. So